In episode 50 of Design EDU Today, Tim Hikes, user experience designer at Wells Fargo Advisor, joins us to discuss the differences between user experience design, interactive design, and print design. The conversation goes into specific details on the common thread between the three distinct professions and how print design educators can bring user experience design into the classroom. Tim also shares his insights on how the design industry has radically changed in the past 20 years and that changes effect on skills like craft and file management. Hello, and welcome to Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing what is necessary to be a successful designer in a contemporary screen-based interactive world. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Tim Hikes. Tim received his Associates of Applied Science with an emphasis in graphic design from St. Louis Community College. He continued his education at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, where he received his Bachelor of Fine Arts with an emphasis in graphic design. While at UMSL, Tim learned UX under the direction of UX designer Patrick McNeil. Hikes also volunteers his time with AIGA St. Louis. There he's the president and he assumed that position July 1, 2017. Tim is also a member of AIGA's National Diversity and Inclusion Committee. In 2016, he co-founded the Design and Diversity Conference in St. Louis, Missouri. This conference focuses on the diversity issues in the design community. In extending the conference, Tim created the Design and Diversity Podcast. The podcast brings co-hosts Tim Hikes and Antoinette Carroll together to talk to designers about diversity in the design industry. What Tim is most noticeable for is his side project, the 28 Days of Black Design pro Designer Project. Blah, 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 blah. What Tim is most noticeable for is his side project, the 28 Days of Black Designers. This project featured 28 black designers in the design industry. This included fashion designers, graphic designers, architectural designers, and more. The project was featured across all social media platforms with large social followings. Uh, Tim, you're a user experience designer, or at least that's your title, which I feel is a lot different than a print designer. So from somebody who actually does both, is that a accurate assessment or am I way off base? No, I really do think it's um, quite different than what a typical print designer is. Um, when I think about the user experience uh, design process, to me it's a discovery process based around the user in every part. Uh, if you think about the process, it's kind of like a spiral. Um, where you start off with some basic information about the user um, that you've been informed of. And then you take this information, um, you design something, and then you test it. And so you start to move into this spiral and you repeat this process. And as you get towards the center, your design becomes more um, coherent, concrete, and it becomes more focused on the user's need. Um, uh, I think that's a perfect example, but um, that example does have its flaws. Um, one flaw I can say is, um, I don't know if you've ever heard the um, 2004 TED talk by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, where he talks about Howard Malkovich and um, the reinvention of spaghetti sauce, where Campbell uh, who makes Prego came to him and was like, you know, mm -hmm. we're like behind uh, when it comes to spaghetti sauce. You know, uh, we have this thin and we have thick, you know, but at that time, no one knew that they wanted thick and chunky. And so he basically did user um, experience design there where he plotted all this stuff and he found out that that, you know, 
they didn't have any thick and chunky. So he told them to make thick and chunky spaghetti sauce. And to this day, thick and chunky spaghetti sauce is like the number one selling sauce. And I say that because um, with the user experience uh, process, that spiral sometimes doesn't allow you to see, you know, what the users uh, don't know what they want. I mean, if you think about it, before the iPhone came out, people didn't, if you asked them what type of phone they wanted, you know, they were talking about Razer phones and a flip mm-hmm. phone. No one was talking about a smartphone. So, yes, I really do see um, the user experience design process being quite different than the print uh, design process. I mean, there are things that are similar, but to me, it's, it's more of a scientific type method thing. Um, based on your education, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the courses you've taken, projects you've done, exercises, you know, whatever, um, what from that translates really well between user experience, interactive and print design? You know, what would be the common thread between them all? Repetition um, and asking the question, why am I doing this? What's your reason behind it? Um, that's something that you basically ask in, in every design process. Um, when you're thinking about putting something on print or on paper, you know, why are you putting this background color there? You know, are you trying to add, add depth to the composition? You know, why is this here? At work, literally, like we have to write detailed information on why we are putting every object where we are putting. And in some cases, we have to show um, that, you know, this is where the industry is going or, you know, this is something that will increase the user's uh, participation in whatever the application that we're creating. So those few things are like the same thing throughout, you know, you, mm-hmm. everyone is asking questions. Um, and then on a basic level, you know, I'm a drawer. So I use uh, sketch books and tracing paper. I mean, even that in all of these design processes, you know, starting from the beginning, like it's a really good tool. And that once again uses um, repetition because I will start with drawing something out. Um, after drawing it out, um, I take some tracing paper and like redraw it until I get it to a point where I like it. Uh, and then I'll take it on the computer and, you know, start to create it there on the computer and then I would print it out, throw some tracing paper back on it. You know, it's that repetition. And as you continue to uh, refine it, you continue to get to a design that you find that's more pleasing to you. So I, yeah, I think that is the process that all three of -hmm. these um, different uh, design avenues use. Let me see. So even if the chasm between user experience interactive and print design, you know, isn't as big as I perceive it to be. Um, there are differences. So what UX, what, what skills are unique to UX and unique to interactive design that need to be instructed more to better prepare emerging graphic designers that, you know, is currently missing from print design mm-hmm. programs? Emerging designers should get used to first defining the problem. Um, And after they've defined the problem, you define the solution uh, or what you think the solution is. And from there, you should start to show um, how you got to that solution. So you want to show personas and tell why your personas are better than the other. You want to show wireframes and storyboards and prototypes, Um, you know, and even within that, you know, these things are really complicated and um, they're really unique, especially to the UX process. Like wireframes need to convey uh, messages about hierarchy and structural of information without creating subjective options about aesthetics. You know, and when that is laid out in black and white, it allows you to come and literally see that, okay, this is the flow of the page. This is the flow of the information on the page. And you can test for that. You can take this and you can cut it all up and you can tell your users to put this in, you know, a flow that you think would be appropriate. What would you do in this particular situation? How would you lay this page out? And that also can be done with interaction design. You know, you can go and take something, create it, 
cut it up the different pieces, you know, to see how someone else would lay it out um, to see if that's the way your users are thinking. I mean, if you have like 90 some people laying it out the same way, then, you know, yeah, this, you know, is a good flow for the users, especially if it ends up being different than what you created. But those basic things, um, especially um, as a UX designer, that's what employers look for. They look to see if you are defining the problem. Um, they look for that in portfolios. Actually, um, I had the opportunity to um, interview at Google and Google actually sends you to a Medium article. And in that article, I mean, it literally breaks down like the difference between just a regular designer and a designer that really knows, you know, a skilled designer that really knows what they're doing, you know, and it talks about it. It's the designer defining the problem. You know, if the designer, you know, showing and talking about, you know, the work and the different methods they're using, why these methods were better, are they showing their prototypes and showing how this prototype um, scaled down to like the solution that they came up with. All of these things are very important and they should be talking about it. And actually in a classroom setting, I think, um, we should start to teach students to, from the beginning, to talk about these things. We should talk to, start from the beginning to say, you know, what's the problem? You know, why are you doing that? And what are you thinking about a solution? And then have them start going into that and start uh, making them explain why they made these choices, you know, and why is this the best choice? And then within critique, having them to defend that. Because when I'm sitting there, um, with that cross-functional team and you know, I got um, the owner of the project there I got somebody from budget and finance and I have someone sitting there who's from um, IT and I have like a UX researcher and me being a UX designer like IT can say easily that okay, well, this is not going to work You know how do you create it's going to work within our platform um, You know budgeting can say, you know, this is not within the scope of what we you know uh, Budgeted out, you know, and the researcher designer can say we can't even test this and you literally have to go and defend these um, Different things and so if you have that primary method laid out moving on to a career uh, within interaction design or UX design, um, you should be, it should be very easy from that point on. Uh, so I think if it's students start developing their portfolios in this um, structural way, they will be very successful from the jump. Um, especially that will put them like ahead of the current students because in my opinion, the only teachers who are telling their students to do this are uh, UX professors. And uh, I say that because um, I actually studied up under a UX professor um, that was Patrick McNeil um, at the University of Missouri St. Louis. Okay, so I have two follow up questions to that. Um, mm -hmm. the, the shallow one, I'll start there, uh, is the idea of wireframes. Um, mm -hmm. I get this. So I, when I'm when I'm having my students do wireframes, they try it's really really hard and and i'm probably just doing it wrong but it's really hard to get students to look at wireframes as organizing content they kind of treat them almost as thumbnails of what the website should look like and maybe that's just because they're used to doing that mm -hmm. so do you have any kind of you know like suggestions like how to you know like maybe make help you know, make wireframes more design agnostic. So they're more, does, does my, my question make sense? Yes, I, I definitely understand what you're saying. So you're asking, how can we get uh, students to start um, laying out or creating wireframes in a hierarchical structure? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so if it was me, what I would literally do is create a whole bunch of different information. Um, and I would tell them to lay this out, you know, in an order that makes sense, you know, and I would come around and I would reorganize it in a different order, you know, and have them to explain why theirs is, you know, better than mine. You know, what, what are you doing here? You know, that makes sense. You know, I mean, I put the title of my um, paragraph up under the um, actual information of the paragraph, you know, so how are you telling me that's like not right? You know, so. That's what I would do. I would really make challenge their thinking 
you know, so that they can get out of the idea of because, I mean, we're all taught how things should look. We think, you know, oh, we have a headline, you know, it could be a sub headline and we have um, information up under that. There could be a picture. So if we start to challenge the way that they think about that and um, start to think to, to think outside of that bubble, then you start to get creative layouts, you know. And so I would just do that black and white on paper, even to the point where it's like I got chunks of information cut out on a piece of paper and your task today here is to come and organize this in 16 different ways that make logical sense. Okay. No, that's a, that's a good one. I think making, cause I, I've, I experimented with this semester with post-it notes. Um, but, and, and that, that helped cause they looked at it as like the path of information as opposed to a thumbnail of what it's going to, you know, what it's going to look like, but getting, but I didn't go into like detail of, like headline. So my wireframes were more like actual page flow with the exercise mm. that I was just doing. Cause I, we mm -hmm. haven't done wireframes yet, but I think I'm going to have them approach the wireframe the way you just, um, expressed it. So uh, the other question that, um, based on you, what well, you were, how you're describing, um, UX, I guess maybe I don't know how to frame the question, but when I'm when I'm teaching my students to design back when I did print, I mean I I'm all I do is interactive and user experience now. But when I was doing print, um, if I was having them design, let's say a catalog, I actually mm -hmm. used that same process. I had them wireframe out the flow. You know, is like does does this information need to go in this direction and and so forth. Um, you know, I made them sketch out the. You know, and and then I also was like, okay, why are we doing this? What's the theme? What's what's the problem you're trying to solve? So I'm kind of curious. Was it maybe that's just like my approach, the way I did it, or you know, what's missing? So what is missing from the process is the user. So that approach was good, but now what happens when you add a persona? You know, okay. so what if we say we have Laura? Laura is 62. Um, she, you know has poor vision so she needs things to be a little bit larger how would laura view this information how would she flip through this page you know what type of um catalyst could this be in you know um that's a completely different way of framing it because now you have to think about the user who's using it based uh versus your own um, opinion about it and your own thoughts about it. If you start throwing in um, personas and then have them the storyboard off of those personas and think about the user, then you start getting completely different things, you know? So yeah, we created a catalog, but now, you know, is this a AARP catalog, you know, where the target audience is older, you know? And if you start thinking about accessibility and individuals who have these different problems, you know, uh, how about a person who's colorblind, you know? Um, how how does that work? You know, how are you going to lay colors in uh, across, you know, uh, different pages and, you know, make sure that when they print out and they look at them, you know, everything isn't the same color or, you know, you have like a big, huge saturated red on top of a saturated blue and you can't read it, you know, or, you know, if the user is using a microfine glass to see it, you know, how is that laid out? Um, and then let's think about people who are dyslexic. Um, because individuals who are dyslexic, what normally happens if they were like creating something, they're going to put a lot of letting in between um, the synthesis there. And they do that because that helps them follow along, you know, so it has nothing to do with the font. That's totally how they would read it because they have problems of jumping from sentence to sentence. Um, so what happens is by the time they get to the end of the row, they'd be on a different sentence altogether. So more letting in between there allows that user to actually read that paragraph better, you know? And then if you think about dyslexic individuals, um, smaller chunks of information. So that would totally make your magazine look completely different than having very long articles. Hmm. That, that kind of gives me chills because literally today, um, I was flipping, I don't remember like one of those, one of those list serves or whatever, one of those aggregate websites that put articles. Um, there was an article, literally somebody just filed a lawsuit against in, in the state of Illinois, uh, against three companies. And the, the lawsuit was based on that. I think it was, 
the lawsuit was filed against Ace, Kmart, and I can't remember the other one, but it was based, they were, it was on behalf of blind people. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, you know, the, the suing that, you know, the, that AAD, that these websites weren't ADA compliant. Mm-hmm. And so that's just something that we're going to have to be cognizant of. I mean, I, I tell my students about it, but I don't like beat it home. I mean, cause I say like, you know, Hey, you know, this is a, this, this website's worldwide, you know, you can't just ignore people with different types of usability, disability issues. Um, but I just, I love that. But the, the letting itself too, I didn't know that the letting was one of the big contributors to, um, somebody who's dyslexic being able to more easily read. Mm-hmm. It, see, I'm a little bit dyslexic. Um, cause I always remember in high school, like getting, having like taking tests and then the teacher like Tim these numbers are like backwards completely backwards I remember working at Wendy's and someone would come and their chains would be 325 and I would give them two dollars and 53 cents mm-hmm. you know or something like that so uh, and then I remember like reading paragraphs and like literally have to have a piece of paper to hide like the lines up under it because I would always end up on uh, the next line or like just completely lost and so like as i learned these things it was like wow like i i didn't know doing these things you know i was you know a little dyslexic and i did that um just out of behavior because i needed to get this information i needed to read and i i wanted to make sure that i had things right so yeah it was a very profound moment for me you know and i really learned a lot here at um my current job at wells fargo where um we have people on staff and that is their job to make sure that what we create is accessible to a larger audience. Wow, that's that could be an entire episode. I so you have um, a, a compli- you know, an, a compliance department for accessibility or, or whatever. How do they mm-hmm. do? They interact with the de- do they come in at the design phase? Do they come in at the development phase? Are the development and designers and this you know the accessibility experts kind of all in the same room at the same time? Um, so. They normally try to touch every designer before they actually touch a project and go through a little bit of accessibility training to explain the different things that you should and should not do and why and even have like a small test, you know, like which one of these is better, this or this, you know, and after you choose it, you know, if you are wrong or right, explaining why it is. But in the process, they normally come in after it. So we've created the prototype, we've had it tested, and now they come in to look at it and they have their own little test sheet. And so with that, they look through it and we have like a pass or fail on different things. So we have a pass or fail with like the colors and the way that we use them, a pass or fail with like chunks of paragraphs and how they're laid out, you know, and sometimes it's explained like which group of people, you know, wouldn't be able to do this, you know, um, if the screen is um, reversed out and the colors are changed because some people can't see certain colors. So we've literally seen screens where um, the individual had um, the background like white and then like, um, no, it had yellow, and then the text was like this um, purple-like color so that they could see it, and it was magnifying. You know, um, you think about um, screen readers, uh, and there's different type of screen readers, especially, you know, when you think about Braille and someone reading back from Braille for blind people, um, all those need to be accessible too, you know, and that becomes a completely different problem because when things are hidden on a page versus not hidden on a page, you run into huge issues. And then if you think about individuals who have, um, that can't use their limbs, so they use like a breath um, mouse type deal. And so they're moving around, on the screen with their like uh, tongue in their mouth, using their lips to move this um, piece up and down and around. And then when they want to like double click on something, they blow into it to uh, click the button, you know? And then um, blind people who can hear, like they'll say, you know, um, read read the screen. And so it'd go down and just start from the top of the screen and it, it'd be like um, timothyhikes.com and then it'd read the menu, home, about, thank you, you know, uh, sign up and it'd read everything. But also um, it reads the um, code information on the back of the photos and everything too. So when you don't have the alternative information there, you know, 
it won't say anything. And then one thing that people don't think about, if you think about links, if you have like read, uh, click here for more. So imagine that reading that like 50 million times on a page, click here <laughs> for more. So we have to be very thoughtful about the different links and how we word them, you know? Um, yeah, you know, and we just have to be like real thoughtful about them. And in the finance industry, like, People love to sue for small things. So that's the reason why they have these large teams and these departments um, here available to help with um, individuals that have accessibility issues. Well, I mean, it's just, I mean, well, and well, and that's actually the, the analogy that I actually, I give to my students is if I use Capital One, but it's the same difference. You're a global company. There are a lot of disabled people when you go on a global scale. <laughs> So you can't <laughs> ignore that customer base. Right. You just can't. I mean, just because they are paying customers just as much as everybody else, and you don't want to lose out on that market share. Whether you do it for philanthropic reasons, because it's the right thing to do, is kind of mm -hmm. almost irrelevant. You just can't miss out on that market segment. Um, one other thing that I wanted to ask about uh, that's unscripted question, you mentioned, and I have... I struggle with this and it comes with, so I, it's the portfolio. Um, mm -hmm. and I, so for example, I went class, we, you know, is I had them make the personas. I had them do, you know, go do like observations and analysis, come back. Um, and you know, they gathered all this data and then they, you know, they found the problem and then, then they created a persona, you know, and let's let's apply this problem to that persona. And, and that became the basis for for what they designed. But mm -hmm. every single student and I told them at the beginning of the course, I said, the pretty little static mock ups that you make are actually almost kind of irrelevant. What the employer wants to see is how you got to that pretty little mock up. But they mm -hmm. ignored the whole, they ignored all the research that they did. They ignored all the personas. They ignored all of that, and they don't put it in their portfolios. So I, I don't know quite how to drive it home that that's what is expected. Because they look at, you know, other people, they look at, like, Dribble and they look at Behance, and all of that, that case study is what I'm calling it, is missing. So do you have any advice on that one? Just like on the psyche of how do you make somebody, how do you, I've led them to the water, but I also need to actually make them drink too. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, my advice is to let them hear from the people who are doing the hiring. Um, so like I said earlier, like um, Google had an, a medium article that they sent individuals to, to read. And in that article, you know, it talks about, you know, how to, tell the difference between um, a seasoned designer, a UX designer, you know, and, you know, a designer that's just telling the fluff. And I really think if they start reading these articles and like seeing like, oh, this is a designer that was at Google, you know, and he hired people at Google or, you know, this is, you know, the head of design at Medium, you know, when they start seeing that, you know, this person was that, I think that would start to change the way that they think about it. And then, um, if you um, have them like write about it, you know, and the significance um, stuff that's in there, I think, yeah, that would hit home. Um, and the name of the article that I'm talking about is um, it's called uh, it's by Chad Thornton and he's the head of design at Medium. And he was at uh, Google uh, before he went to Medium and it's called Hiring a Product Designer, How to Review Portfolios. And from the beginning, like it would just it just blows you away. I think this should be like standard class material from anybody that's getting ready to create a portfolio. Uh, and they should read through this and basically like highlight or take notes on what they say and then design your portfolio as said. Like if they follow this like word for word um, as the truth as a Bible trust me, employers would be like hiring these students like left and right because I know they're not doing it, but it, it just blew my mind, you know, and literally this is the article that I was given and told, you know, here, read this article because we use this article as a basis when we hire people. 
Well, good. I'll I'll definitely check that out and, and make my students do it too. But I mean, I don't know if all. I mean, I can't speak for every single faculty out there. Um, I know I stress it all the time that you gotta you gotta do case studies, and by mm-hmm. case studies, I mean you know who cares what it looks like. Anybody can make it look pretty. What was the process behind it? And and you know, and the other thing that you know, f- from an education standpoint, what's missing for me is that when I'm telling my students this, I can't find a lot of good examples. <laughs> so I'm I'm you know I'm like really struggling to actually find examples because that helps a lot when they when they see somebody else you know they can at least emulate it. Yeah, but you know the best thing that you could do is Google UX designer and um. You can Google UX designers at Google, UX designers at um, Pinterest, UX designer at Twitter, and all of their portfolios, um, they're communicating their understanding of the problem, you know, and how they solved it, um, you know, and they're talking about uh, UCD, user-centered design, you know, and how they came up with it and going through all these different techniques and they're showing it. So, I mean, if you're, if you give them these portfolio uh, links of people who are there at these places, you know, in these current jobs, I think that might also hit home. Moving on to my next question. I still think predominantly most graphic design programs are print programs, really. And if they do have interactive or user experience design in them, it's really one class maybe two classes that are kind of siloed off from the rest of them. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, that like, that's a generalization. There's obviously, you know, you got a, you were learning under a interactive user experience designer. Um, So there are obviously exceptions to that, but you know, giving, you know, what would you suggest to what kind of um, projects or courses would you suggest adding to those traditional type of programs? I mean, you can always just add a basic UX course to the program where Mm -hmm. you hit the fundamentals and basically practice um, rationale and why you did things. Um, I would also suggest if if there's some way to at a course that's just based on you creating things and having students to be able to explain why they created it, you know, that would go a long way. Um, you know, and actually like I have in my mind, like a side project that based around like critiques, you know, where people would like submit their information and have, um, educated and very methodical individuals to explain why this was successful. But, Um, Any way to get students or any type of course that would get students to communicate why they made the decision, why the decision they made was the best decision, you know, and why it works. And if they're able to show that, that would be a very good route and that would help them, you know, way more than anything else in the future. Just being able to articulate why you did something. Yeah. And I think that I I can just I'm. I can just picture like the argument from, you know, design educators like, well, we already do critiques and we make them talk about their work and they do. But the most like a lot, again, a lot of those design programs are housed within the fine arts department. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of those um, students will take their foundational courses from artists so they mm-hmm. so from the very like from like their infancy they learn how to talk about work from an artistic perspective mm-hmm. and they lose sight of the, the the fact that it is a business and you know how does x help my key performance you know indicator or how does it help on my return on like what how does it help on these like different business metrics and so yeah yeah, and I, I totally understand what you're saying. You know, they um, they need to be a, explaining the work from the point of a problem solving um, technique. You know, and I, I can actually like jump into that. Like, yeah, we had critiques. We would come and we would design stuff, and we would like put it on the wall. You know, and we would just ask questions. Why did you do this? What type of typeface is that? You know, why did you use these different colors? You know, but that's completely 
different than asking, you know, so what is the problem that you were trying to solve here? You know, and did you solve it? Now, how did you go about solving that problem and what type of techniques did you use to solve that problem? And how did those techniques bring you to this end solution? And did you test this end solution and is it actually solving the problem? This is completely different than a typical art critique. And that's what we were doing in um, my UX class, you know, and like we we were like hardcore, you know, students was running out the classroom like crying because it was serious, you know. And plus also, you know, I love critiques and I love, you know, talking about artwork. So I was also part of the problem. I've had to be taken outside plenty of times like, Mr. Hikes, that was a little too much. You know, I was like, I just want her to tell the truth. She she stood up all night and she did this yesterday. But different story, probably a different podcast. But yeah, like those are two different things and you know we both could understand the value in one from a business sense and I was interviewing for a job for a job and um a guy told me and he, he told me that a good UX designer is able to take a list of things that you know the employer wants and pull out the individual things that are very important and as you said, align those to the business goals, you know, and to say, these are the things that we need to focus on, you know, because these will increase the product and also help you reach this goal for the next quarter, for the next year. And all these other things are just nice to have. And because, I mean, if you're ever a UX designer in a um, organization where it's just you, you do everything, you know, and then you have to like literally figure out, you know, these are all the different things, the features that they want. And you're going to be, you know, in charge of explaining why you know this certain feature is you know the one you know and so it's it's always around you know it, to me it's like an analytical process where basically you have to know how to talk to talk walk to walk and prove you know what you're talking about i i think that's where the educators really need it it's like I think the students are already doing it, but on a subconscious level. So mm-hmm. they may, you know, just like, why did you pick the colors? And and instead of just saying, well, because I like it, they, they I mean, they, maybe they picked the. No, I really do think like the, the, the students, regardless, are purposely make picking their things. They're not just doing it on personal taste, but they just mm-hmm. don't know how to articulate that. That They don't know how to tie it to a, a goal. <laughs> Um, I think it might be a great exercise to have them type it out because then that allows you to think of it from a different standpoint. And in a job, in some cases, like at Wells Fargo, like we will be required to um, type out exactly why, you know, what we did was successful, why it worked, the rationale behind it, you know, other organizations who are also doing the same thing, you know, and the current industry standard, you know, and how it's leading that way. Like all this information, we would be required to write, you know. So that would only, like, in my opinion, give them practice for the real thing. No, that I actually did that with a with a colleague. We co-taught a course, and mm-hmm. literally. It was all based on they had to write narratives before they designed any before they even thumbnail. They had to write a narrative. And it was mm. it was really fun because and what made me stumble upon it was I had a group of just, you know, graphic design students taking a motion graphics class that I was taking. And I uh-huh. had never taught motion graphics before. And so I didn't really know what I was kind of doing. And I approached it simply like motion graphics moving movie they need a script <laughs> and so then i made them write scripts but the, these are all graphic designers and they st- and i noticed in their writing they were describing what it would look like mm-hmm. and i was like no this is you need to write a script you need to write the story and so then i took that and 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 tried that on just like traditional print design and oh my god it the the design it really improved the quality of, of their ideas mm-hmm. um, significantly. Yeah. It's, like, it's just amazing how much the, the writing actually breaks them away from focusing on what it looks like and more about what its purpose is. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like writing helps them to facilitate their own idea of what good design is. Because within education, that's always my argument is are you teaching me your idea of what good design is or 
are you teaching me, you know, the elements that make good design and allowing me to develop myself as an artist to produce things that are designed well? That's that's a complicated one. <laughs> it's 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 always nice. And I I actually like my where I teach and, and my colleagues because we actually I don't I can't play art director. You know, I can't tell them <laughs> what it needs to look like. So I'm like mm-hmm. more of the, like the process. Like if you go about this process, your solution will end up looking really good. But I've got a couple of colleagues that are just like crazy. They're really good at just like that art direction. Like, you know, like do this, do that. Why would you do this? And, you know, and breaking down like the nuts and bolts of it where I kind of like look at the holistically. So I think it's good when they get like students get both of that. You know, they, they get the like the micromanage and see how that works um, mm-hmm. versus just like the total freedom, <laughs> but learning about the process. Um, I want to follow. I, so you've created a lot of YouTube videos um, and you've been <laughs> you've been talking about things you know, like designers need to focus on, such as craft file organization i actually started adding that to a class by the way um and 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 life (laughs) after school so are these skills missing from design education or do you think like students are just simply overlooking them because you obviously saw a problem and you're trying to solve it (laughs) they are in my opinion missing from design education um so with me being part of AIGA St. Louis uh, and watching the student conference year after year and, you know, graduating, um, I saw these things were missing, you know. Um, oh, I hope my professors are not listening to this and they're, they're going to give me the side eye once I say this. But, you know, if you've graduated from school 20 years ago, there's no way you can be up in tune with you know, what's currently happening with individuals who are trying to get employed, you know? Yeah. And when I graduated, you know, I, my professor was saying, you know, oh, you don't want to do, you know, any um, of those organizations where, you know, they're finding your job for you, you know, because organizations are losing money because they have to pay for that. And all this, you know, all these other little crazy things, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a designer trying to get a job, you know? So the thing is like, what's going to help me get the opportunity that I want, you know, if, I, I don't hear people saying that, okay, while you're th- going throughout school, it's very important that you do have internships because that's going to give you valuable experience. Um, even if, you know, you don't have anything to put in your portfolio afterwards, the fact that you worked at some place with a group of people that teaches you something. Number one, you learn how to talk about projects, especially if you're in an agency. The first thing that teach, teach you is don't say I, me, and my. You say we and us because even if it was just you designing the project, you're letting the client think that it was the larger team that designed this project. That was one of the first things that I learned. You know, my professors didn't uh, teach me that. As a matter of fact, when we do talk about critiques, we are, we are saying I, me and my, and this is why I did this and, you know, chose this process, you know? Um, and then, you know, I went from a community college. So I graduated from St. Louis Community College. And then I went on to uh, the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And so I have my associates. And if you are talented, yes, you can find a job directly, you know, out of a two year program. But the problem that you're going to run into is eventually it's going to hit you and you're going to want to make some more money. Uh, And there's going to come a time where you're going to be blocked because you don't have that extra degree. People ask me, you know, Tim, did you need it? I totally needed it. I definitely needed, you know, the extra four years. And what you are creating at that level in the two-year education, you know, no matter how good you are, uh, it's going to like quadruple, you know, once you go back and get that extra two years from a different institute. I mean, you look at back at the work that you created and say, I cannot believe that I thought, you know, this was like the end all be all and like really good. I mean, the experience is totally different. You learn more, you learn how to think about things in a different way, you know? So, uh, I thought it was very important to at least explain what I thought about it, especially at that time when I created those videos, I was like more so of a recent graduate cause I graduated in, uh, 2015. And, um, I think it's good to bring individuals who just graduated, who landed jobs back to talk about 
that process, you know, how it went, how they ended up landing that job, you know, and how uh, the current students can do that same thing. Because I had um, a friend of mine that graduated before me. He graduated actually two years before me. And um, I had asked him, you know, if there was one thing you could have known at this current point, you know, or done at this current point, what was that one thing that you would have did or wish somebody would have told you? And he said, I wish, you know, I wouldn't have been um, so hung up on like school. I wish I would have been more hung up on creating things for myself because most of the stuff that you created in school, they employers know it, they see it, you know, it's nothing special, but what they do start to value is the things that set you apart. So how are you using what you learned in school to now create stuff that you like, you know, so if you're doing illustrations, you know, are you, you know, are you showing like that depth that you learned in school and adding that to your illustrations? Like that becomes very valuable, which is why, you know, I'm so big on side projects, but I'm sure that's a question later on, but yeah, that's why I'm really big on side projects. (laughs) Yeah, no, and and we're going to jump on that, but I do want to just follow up the, the, you know, the the videos that you created with Uh just, I, I, I've come to terms with this myself is that I am a design educator. Mm -hmm. I've designed websites. I can write, I can do front end development. I can even do a little bit of back end development, but I'm still primarily an educator. So I don't do these things day in and day out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just when it comes to like, I, I ask my students to use sketch, um, for their interactive designs and but i'm not a power user and so and mm-hmm. i think and i think that's one thing that like educators really need to kind of like and that and this podcast has actually helped me that the podcast is like every single person i pretty much interviewed said like oh yeah file management is just like a train wreck and so that's when i was like mm-hmm. all right i'm gonna <laughs> go back and i'm gonna teach them file organization because obviously you know they were organizing their stuff on a print-based thing where you know the internet works a lot differently than that these are precise links to things and you know let's let's build a file organization on on that and so i think that's one thing that i hope that like the educators take away from this is this that like the realization that yes we are um educators embrace that but you do need to go and realize that the profession is drastically changed Mm -hmm. (laughs) and even though you're not a everyday practitioner of it you're a practitioner of education you still need to i don't know go back learn about it <laughs> right so you so you can bring that bring that relevant stuff because mm-hmm. and I, again file organization i look that's a craft that's you know that is just equally as important as back in the day when you would use the exacto knife to cut your you know your 16 by 20 black museum <laughs> board precisely it is the same thing. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you're addressing that because I think, you know, I think that'll help is like when professionals start saying, Hey guys, it's, you know, Hey educators, you need to start thinking about these things. Um, <laughs> it would be great. So, but now back onto the, to the side project. So like you said, you, the, you knew, you knew the upcoming question. Um, so you talk a lot about things like side projects attending AIGA events and meeting designers and you keep saying these things are always, you know, essential for emerging designers. And I know personally, I always stress to my students to do these things, but they rarely listen. Um, and so what, what would, what advice would you give to like help stress the importance of doing these types of things for students or even like if I have to incentivize them to do it. The issue is I know that they will not learn it or understand it until like it's too late to where like they graduated and it's like, oh man, you know, I wish I would have known about this while I was in school or somebody was telling me or lead me to Ray, you know, um, the reason I, you know, push pro- uh, side projects and um, working on this because um, I think Timothy Goodman said it best. You got to make a lot of stuff before you can make a lot make stuff you like um what i think he said you got to make a lot of stuff before you can make stuff like yourself and 
I always say, you know, in order to become a really good designer, you have to have volumes and volumes of stuff that you created because um, that adds into your craft. Um, the more you're illustrating or the more that you're drawing or using the things that um, you work with, the better you get at them, like, naturally. You know, um, some people are naturally uh, good illustrators. I am not a natural good illustrator. I'm, I definitely have to work at it and work hard at it. Um, so, I mean, if you want to be one of the best and on top, you have to uh, do that. And then secondly, um, a lot of these places, especially if you're from – uh, smaller cities, you don't have the connections to get into or you don't see, you don't have those opportunities, you know, so your best deal to get like to put yourself on the same level is to make connections with people from across the world. Um, That's why I am like so active on Twitter and like talking to people. Twitter um, allows me to talk to anyone and, you know, all they have to do is like respond back, you know, um, and there, it's like up close in your face. And so um, with that, you know, that's how I ran into um, the people at at Twitter. If we're talking about Twitter, because I had the opportunity to interview at Twitter. And actually, um, the guy um, knew about me from my side projects. And um, he was like, he really liked me. You know, he knew at the current time I was uh, in between jobs, uh, which that only lasted about a, a month and a half. Uh, and, you know, he wanted to help facilitate me within the process. And so uh, with that, you know, uh, he brought me over to Twitter. Um, they have recruiters that are trained to just do that. And I was able to interview right there. And I guess if you want to show students or, you know, the value of it or how important that is, I, I guess it would be best to bring in or, you know, maybe do like a Google Hangout session with someone who's currently doing that or uh, who can show like because i did x you know now i am x or you know x y and z you know and uh, i think there should be maybe some conversation around you know how do you reach out to other artists because i've seen mm -hmm. plenty different um artists post stuff on twitter where like oh this student reached out to me and was like he liked my work you know could i share my um indesign files or you know my uh, illustrator files you know like it should be you know a conversation you know this is how you reach out to every artist you know or other artists because the fanboy fangirl works well and i do it a lot you know oh my god i'm like love your artwork i love what you do i'm like such a fan you know and i would really like it if you you know sat down and just you know viewed a couple pieces of mine you know and tell me you know some areas of improvement where if i did this or if i did these few things i would be better one thing that i really do in my portfolio is i go in and i always ask them what's the best piece and what's the worst piece um and if you have 40 people telling you that this piece is your best piece mm -hmm. and you know another 50 people telling you that this piece is your uh, worst piece you know what piece to take out or redo and you know what pieces to keep yeah you know so yeah it's, it's very valuable no i did that that was like i'm gonna brag that was like my most proudest moment like I'm fresh out of undergrad and, you know, I'm going to an AIGA portfolio review and mm -hmm. I never got the same answer to that question. And so mm -hmm. that was just like, yes, nobody could pick one. So that means like it's all decent <laughs> or it was yeah. all bad. You could, you could take that either way, but, um, so that, but no, I, I love that question. Cause I do the same thing. You know, what's funny is, so I do this podcast and I've got some, I, some people, I've got some really, had really good guests on that, you know, when I, like I tell my students about it or somebody was like, well, how did you get that person? It's like, I just asked them. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I, that's not a, that's not a natural skill, is it? Just like the ability no, to just like, I just thought because I do it, I just assume, again, you should, I should never assume, but I just assumed that was obvious. Just ask. Mm -mm, no, not at all. Um, and okay. some people think like these big name designers are like too good, you know, to speak to them. A lot of people think AIGA, uh, the board members are a bunch of people in black turtlenecks, you know, who talk um, very analytical about design and really critique things with a fine tooth. But no, we're not. We're like knuckleheads like me. Um, so the best thing to do is ask. I keep telling people all the time. The worst thing you can ever get is a no. And normally that's not the worst thing. Yeah, no, and it's just I'm just surprised it's not a natural um, um, skill. Oh no, I remember what I wanted to to, to ask you about because you've mentioned it now a couple of times, and this is something I've always had in the back of my head, um, but I figured 
since you've, you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times, you, it would be good to ask you, um, drawing illustration. I, mm -hmm. students don't do it enough, but at the same time, I'm actually, you know, I'm thinking it's like, I'm wondering if that has to do with, okay, so you go into a, a traditional design, you know, you, you know, program and, and you're learning, you're probably doing like drawing, like where you're drawing still lifes in one class and then you're doing, um, life drawing. And so you're doing those two types of drawing and those were, you mean like, like the emphasis is on photorealism, you know, like in, in mm -hmm. those type of classes, but that's not the kind of drawing that designers need to do. And I'm just wondering to myself, like, is that, is that type of drawing really beneficial? Should there be something more? It's like more like, you know, like you do the gesture drawings, or like the really quick sketchy things. Would that, you know, something like that be more beneficial? I mean, in a sense, maybe um, those type of drawing, you know, drawing really quicks would be beneficial in like a meeting where people are talking about yeah. ideas, how things will, you know, look around, you know, but if they, the type of drawing that we do do for, you know, professional type work, I would say the best thing for them to do is to copy. I mean, literally, mm -hmm. uh, Jessica has said it best, you know, go, go out there and find something that you like and copy it like word for word, dot for dot, shadow, shadow for shadow, copy it. Now, don't put in your portfolio like you created yeah, no. it, but <laughs> copy it because you learn valuable skills on, you know, how they might have created that. You know, most of us, most of the time, we always think that they, you know, had some type of shortcut to create something. But normally it is, you know, a, a really hard and rigorous type of, of deal, you know. Uh, and I think that would be the best way to learn how to do anything. Like if you want to go on Dribble and you see all these uh, beautiful prototypes, you know, with all these um, very um, really light shadows and pretty colors that glow copy it like literally take it off there and you know hold it aside if they said that they used um sketch and did it you use sketch and try to reproduce the same thing and what happens is after that you have that and i say after you like copy that then you know start from scratch and see if you can create your own that's totally different mm -hmm. and and i actually had a colleague where i used to teach his name was ivan brunetti he's a fantastic illustrator comic artist he's his basically it seems like every other week he's on the cover in the New Yorker and I was uh, talking to him about this and he said yeah the best thing would be for them to just like pick up some really well done zines or um you know some comics mm -hmm. and just sit there and and try to copy it just sit there and try to copy mm -hmm. it over and over and over again and I'm just I I just think that would be a better approach a class doing that would be better than doing a life drawing or doing a um, a still life drawing class for designers but yeah, I, I may know, be in the minority on that but those classes really tend to um help uh entertain entertainment designers because i mean if you think about it a lot of people don't know that a script first comes with just words and there is a designer who draws each and every scene you know, before they put a camera to it. And most bigger agencies, the photo shoot is drawn out scene by scene. Um, or, you know, they mock it up, you know, exactly how they want the photographer to take this photo. So, I mean, those um, photorealistic things, you know, they are useful. It's just like where in design are they using it or doing these things? And normally it's more in the higher end um, for entertainment. Yeah. No, and that makes sense. And it's not, and that is not necessarily maybe the day to, well, that job is day to day, but the day to day is more of that like quick sketching and meetings and blasting mm -hmm. out ideas. So, all right, Tim, I just took a look at the time. And so uh, before I let you go, is there anything that you are working on personally that you want to promote or you want to share or anything you want to talk about at all? Oh my God! You let me promote something about B or Sherry. Oh my God! Oh, <laughs> now I'm kicking stuff because I got so excited. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, what I'm currently working on now. So I did do the um, I did another project that was a re 
they'll hear together that us. I, I thought that was so clever. Uh, clever, you know. Here, all of us are here together, you know, and die dot us us you know um and basically that project was um centered around uh the hate and people are saying you know that designers mm. don't have a voice you just go and design a pretty picture this that and other but we do you know um what people don't understand is you have uh different individuals who would like to get out there who would like to protest who would like to you know give their voices but they can't because you know they have to think about i have you know a wife and children and if I'm not here, you know, my wife doesn't eat, my kids doesn't eat, you know. So that project gave them the opportunity to, you know, somewhere, some way voice their opinions about the things that are going on, especially the hate that we saw um, with the different marches of these hate groups, because that really that that's really scary. Uh, that really scared me. And then um, the, the current project that I'm working on again is the um, 28 Days of Black Designers project for 2018. Um, this time, it's not rushed at the last minute. I'm waking up in the middle of the night trying to put up another profile and keep <laughs> track of designers. It started early. And um, it's going to be really nice. Uh, I took the time and opportunity to work with a few people and to do that. And then um, lastly, I always want to talk about the Design Plus Diversity Conference. Um, and so the Design Plus Diversity Conference is a conference that um, focuses on the diversity issues with the in, within the design uh, industry. And so this year, um, last year we had it, but we had it the first time it was about uh, 50 some people that came. This year we had like over 100 uh, and two individuals that came. And shockingly, it was like people from larger organizations like Apple brought out like 10 individuals from Apple. You know, they flew all the way to small old St. Louis, you know, to attend this conference. We had people there from Adidas, which is like really cool. And so um, next year, the conference is growing and we're adding more tracks. So now, you know, instead of just talking about diversity within graphic design, we're also talking about diversity within arch uh, architectural, which we did that a little bit this year with Brian Woods, you know, but we're also adding fashion in there too, you know, and I think it's, um, a movement now is starting to be where people are starting to notice these things, you know, and talk more about it. And what can we do, you know, because these things are taught, you know, our um, society is designed to be like that. And you start to have these designed unconscious bias and, you know, if people are not aware of them and these different things that we deal with until someone else points them out, you know, and I think this conference allows people to come together to voice these different things, bring awareness to them, you know, and for us to start to sit down and solve things. And so these are the things that I'm doing, uh, the things that I'm looking forward to uh, next year. And I um, hope um, everyone follows along. Yeah. I, I personally love the, um, all, all the work you're doing. I mean, that's what attracted me to ask, have you on in a guest, but the one like that was really useful for, to me was the, the 29 designers, because mm -hmm. I, I think, we are all wrapped in our own little bubbles. Um, mm -hmm. So, and I'm going to use this podcast as an example. So I started off by just like inviting the people I knew. Um, but then it became like, well, wait a minute. If I just do that, you know, I could be very, you know, very narrow in, in, in the group of people I talk to. And so like 29 designers to me is like a resource. So like, Oh, this is, these are people that I should be looking at. I should be reading about. And then when I start reading about them, I start seeing who they're following and, and who they're into. And it just opens up my world and it, it introduces mm -hmm. me to people that I didn't know. I didn't, I would never have known because for whatever reason, they're not getting the same level of broadcasting that, you know, the standards are, I guess, if you will. Right, right. I'm still getting emails about that project today. And a lot of people that was on that project are still getting calls and requests from people to be a part of things, to join things and, you know, to talk about it. Or even their stories are just inspirational to other people. And they're still getting like email from individuals saying, you know, I'm sharing your story, you know, what's a really great thing, uh, especially uh, Timothy Barbalevans. And like I call him the other Tim. Oh, it's too many of us Tims in uh, design, but I call him the other Tim. And, um, you know, I mean, gay black designers, you know, and of course, there's plenty of them within the design field. But having someone to speak about, you know, the trials and tribulations and what they're going through and to be able to relate to it, you know, um, I think that's very powerful to see someone out there who's doing the same thing that you're doing, if not better, and you're able to relate to it. That's what the um, um, 
black community within the design industry, I think, needed, you know. And then it just became totally aware to me when I found out that we only make up 3% of the design industry anyway. So if we could connect and just talk about it, you know, and let other people know that, hey, we're out here, I think that would be a really good thing. No, and it also really does help, too, because I'm in Baltimore, and we do have a large um, black community, Mm -hmm. and it just... Now they're not. Now my students are not just seeing the standard, you know, canon of the same white folk that they always see. I'm you're <laughs> you're giving me like no. These are you know this is there's you know there's more to it than just what you know. It just makes yes. it more accessible. And and so that one really was a tremendous resource for me. I mean, I should be doing it on my own anyway. I shouldn't have to have somebody curate it for me because that just puts it all on you. And like, you've already got enough on your plate, but <laughs> I, uh, I, I appreciate it nonetheless. Oh, I don't so. mind. I don't mind. I'll start sending you cue cards that you can use for next year. <laughs> and I'll gladly use them. Well, all right. So that's all we have time for today on episode 50 of design ADU today. I want to thank today's guest, Tim Hikes for being so generous with his time. Before I go, I also want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and the CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new show releases and updates about the podcast, visit the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash design edu today or subscribe to this podcast through the itunes and google play store finally if you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show contact me through the show's email address at hello at design once again thank you for listening to design edu today